But let me jump in, let's pray, and then we'll get straight into it. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come again uh, together to study this topic of holiness. Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for the way that you're fashioning us and shaping us to be like Jesus, and we pray that that would continue this morning, that as we um, come to your word, you would sanctify us with the truth and your word is the truth, and we pray that you would help us to understand that we would um, process all that we need to do uh, in our heads and that you would make the jump between our heads and our hearts. That, that last 18 inches is so often so difficult for it to, to change us and make a difference. So we just pray that your spirit would be at work, um, bridging that gap and illuminating your word to us uh, so that we could see the implications and the application of it. Uh, and not just hear the truth of it, but see and experience the goodness of it as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this is the practice of holiness. Hey, come on in. This is the practice of holiness. And there are so many legitimate ways in which we could tackle it that, um, that I, well, I hope the way that I've chosen will serve you. Um, I've wrestled with it all, like I've wrestled with it for a long time about how exactly to do this. Uh, so I'm hoping that this will be useful. Now, the next 30 minutes, I will just say, or however long I go, is neither definitive nor exhaustive. So there is the process of sanctification, this pursuit of holiness is a lifelong thing. And so to expect us to have nailed it in four weeks would be wonderful, but it's not realistic. Uh, so and today, uh, unlike the last kind of three weeks where we've kind of honed in on one specific topic, uh, one specific text of scripture, uh, this is more like a compendium of holiness. So a kind of a, a collection of just different thoughts that I hope you'll see the progression as we work our way through. Um, hey Rob, come on in. Uh, I hope you'll see the progression as we work our way through. Uh, but what I'm attempting to do is I'm going to pose five questions about the practice of holiness and try to answer them together. So hopefully you can stick with me as we go for it. So question number one is what does holiness look like up close and personal? So we have defined it over the weeks, and I put the definition in your handout there, uh, about what personal holiness and living a life that pleases God should look like. But I thought we could perhaps just develop that a little bit more. Uh, and so I've got a few kind of um, more detailed thoughts on what holiness looks like up close and personal. The first of those is that holiness is not just mere rule keeping. Okay, and the word mere there is important because certainly holiness is no less than obeying God and keeping his commands. But uh, Jesus did not say, uh, you know, I have come to preach the gospel of Cheryl Crow. Do you know, do you remember Cheryl Crow? She, no, she was a, like, in the 90s, she sang a song and it, and it went like this. She said, uh, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. You know? Wow. I know, it's great. <laughs> uh, Joseph wants me to sing on stage as well. No. <laughs> All right, so Jesus did not come saying, you know, if you love me, just believe whatever you like, do whatever you like, believe the gospel of Cheryl Crow. No, he says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So holiness is obedience, but it's more than just rule keeping. It's more than just being nice, being basically moral or, you know, uh, practicing a kind of polite etiquette in public. You know, that Jesus chastised the Pharisees, Mark 7, who were morally upright and uh, respectable and 
uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, externally presenting themselves as holy, and yet he often rebuked them, and the rebuke was, you, you know, with your lips you honor me, but with your hearts they're far from me. So holiness is more than just kind of a checklist, you know, sanctification by checklist. You know, uh, Claire, my wife, she loves checklists. She loves to write lists. She has lists that keep track of her lists. She's just that kind of person. She loves lists. I don't. I don't like to be told what to do. And so that's an, uh, often an area of conflict for us. <laughs> so we must be careful not to just turn our fight of faith and the pursuit of holiness into a sanctification to-do list. Like we just need someone to tell us exactly what needs to be done because holiness is so much more than that because a, a checklist, while useful in some ways, doesn't get at our hearts. And it certainly can avoid the gospel as well, which we need uh, if we're going to pursue holiness. So it's not just rule keeping, nor is it, secondly, the way of the world. Now, sometimes cultural values and biblical values overlap. They do. You know, we're very fortunate in the West to live in cultures and, and uh, countries that are based on, you know, historical Christian truth. We're, we're fortunate to do that. But the way of the world is not generally compatible with the way of holiness. Uh, the way that uh, some of the biblical writers use the word world in the scriptures, and John, the Apostle John, is one of those foremost kind of uh, authors of scripture that uses the word world. Uh, it's used, I think, over nearly 200 times in the Bible, and John uses most of them, and a lot of them are found in his gospel. Um, he uses the word world to describe uh, a humanity that is uh, opposed to God in everything. It stands in opposition to him and hates him. So he would say, uh, well, in, in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, you know, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the desires of pride in possessions, that's not from the Father, it's from the world. And so he sets this contrast up between, you know, holiness really is not the way of the world because the world generally stands in opposition to God. And worldliness, um, as uh, David Wells, who was an author, he wrote a book called God in the Whirlwind. He defined worldliness as anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And that's what our world is doing. And so we just need to be careful uh, and remember that holiness is not the way of the world, that holiness comes with great cost. As Paul says in Romans 12, he says, you know, we do not want to be squeezed into the world's mold but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Okay, so holiness is not the way of the world. Thirdly, holiness looks like the renewal of God's image in us. We talked about this last week, so I'll just breeze over it, but it's taking on the family resemblance. Or to say it another way, um, when Adam and Eve were created, Genesis 1.26, God created man and woman in his image, but sin distorts and it mars that image. And holiness is the process of being recast in God's image, is being restored and renewed to the image of God. Fourth, holiness looks like a life marked by virtue instead of vice. And what I mean by that is, as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for all those who are in Christ, who have been joined to him, we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. And then in Ephesians, he develops his thoughts 
where he says, you know, now the new life, the new heart that God, God has given to us as he's redeemed us and regenerated us and born us again to a new and living hope. We've got new hearts, new desires, new ways of thinking, new ways of living that he calls us to. And this call to put off certain things and to put on other things. So in your notes, you'll find a, a, a long list of some of the vices and sins that characterize the old man or the old life that we're called to put off. I won't read through them all, but I'll just dip into a few. So you'll, you'll see lots of repeat and overlap here as Paul calls us to throw off evil thoughts, impurity, sexual immorality, envy, jealousy, maliciousness, gossip, slander disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, drunkenness, wrath, anger, obscene talk, lying. These are all things that the Bible calls us to put off in our pursuit of holiness. Ordinary ways in which we all struggle that God calls us to put to death. And you just could reflect on that list yourself for a few moments, I'm sure. But then there's also not just the putting off of sin and ungodliness, there's also the pursuit of righteousness, that putting on of character values and virtues and, uh, um, you know, just ways in which we are called to live that reflect the new man and new woman that we have become in Jesus Christ. So, again, a whole list that I've kind of just extracted from the New Testament, Romans 12. We're we're called to put on genuine love. We're called to put on a hatred for evil. We're called to put on zeal, serve the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in tribulation. We're called to be peaceable, to not repay evil with evil, to be loving, patient, kind, not envious, not rude, not selfish. We're to put on love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as the Spirit works in us. So there's a whole list of different things. And holiness is, at one level, a putting off of the old man and a putting on of the new man. That we're to become more like Jesus in these characteristics and values and virtues that would have characterized him. Now, what you'll notice as you read through Uh, those lists is that there's no specifics given about how long we should read the Bible for or how much we should pray or how much we should give to the poor, which some people confuse with holiness. Sometimes we confuse, and I've been guilty of this in the past, we can confuse holiness with the pursuit of and the practice of just spiritual disciplines or kind of activism and serving and doing for Jesus and obviously I'm not saying don't read your Bible and don't pray that would be oh my goodness you know I would be fired Um, and I don't want that Uh, spiritual disciplines are a cornerstone of the Christian life serving God and serving one another is an important facet of the Christian life. They are necessary for the pursuit of holiness, but we, we shouldn't confuse them with, as like the only thing that matters. There is more to it. Scripture explicitly calls us to put off and to put on righteousness, to put to, deed, uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh and put on Jesus. So I've uh, 
I, I didn't feel like I could teach a class on holiness without including Romans chapter 6, which we haven't had a time to look at. But Paul here, it's one of his great uh, expositions on how we're to live as Christians, how it, our union with Christ is supposed to make a day-to-day difference in us putting to death sin and putting on Christ. And towards the end, uh, is it verses maybe 12, 13, 14, he says, Let sin therefore, uh, or let not sin therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under law, but under grace. So it's the putting off and the putting on. And sin... Uh, sorry, holiness, number five, it looks like obedience to God's command. So just Jesus says uh, in John 14, and then John uh, remembers it in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You know, if you love me, you will, if we've been captivated by him, if we've been uh, caught up by his love and affected by his grace and experienced his mercy, there will be something then that new heart that has come to us will say, I want to keep your commands. So, and John would say, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. One of the evidences of our salvation is that we are pursuing holiness and seeking to walk in the way in which Jesus walked. So that leads us ultimately to the fifth, uh, to the sixth and final kind of reflection on holiness. It looks like Christ-likeness. You know, um, I, I don't know whether you've noticed this, maybe this is just me, but I, when in the 90s, everybody used to wear the WWJD, like wristbands, and it, uh, there seems to be a little bit of a resurgence of that now, and I remember being told, no, 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 you shouldn't wear a WWJD band because it's not what, what would Jesus do, it's what has Jesus done, and I think, yeah, that's absolutely right, but I also think that when it comes to thinking about holiness, what would Jesus do in this? It's quite a useful way of thinking, you know. What would Jesus do in this? If he was here right now with me, would I be doing this? Would I be saying these things? Would I be, because he is here with me right now through his spirit. And Jesus is the most practical uh, human example of what it means to be holy. He's the model for our love. You know, John 13, he gets down and washes the feet of his disciples, lays down his life for his friends. He's the model for our humility. He's the model for how we face and fight temptation. He's the model for steadfastness in suffering. He's the model for obedience to the Father. So that kind of idea of what would Jesus do, I think could be useful as we think about holiness. You know, I I may not remember all of the Ten Commandments. I may not remember the fruits of the Spirit. But, you know, if I want to think about holiness, I need to Jesus. What would he do in this situation? What is he calling me to do in this situation? All right, so that's question number one. What does holiness look like? So hopefully that gives us a little bit more uh, meat on the bones. But number two, question number two, what is the key to the pursuit and practice of holiness? Like, is there a silver bullet of sanctification? Is there something that we just do uh, that will, you know, tomorrow we'll wake up and we will be perfect? Wouldn't that be lovely? Oh, that would be lovely. And, and I think, it, you know, we, we, we think that way because we, if you're like me, I love to simplify things. I like to be able to take 
you know, things and, and wrestle with them in a way that I can kind of simply understand and then communicate to others. And so I kind of long for one secret, one truth, one principle, one foolproof technique, one life-changing tip that's going to make everything different. And maybe you've heard this, maybe from a, a preacher, an author of a book that you read, maybe from a friend, maybe from someone you love and respect, where they will say, you know, if you just did this, it would make all the difference. Or if you just did this or prayed this or read this or said this, it would make all the difference. I, I know I've heard those kind of things in, in sermons or read them in books. I think I've even said them myself over the last 20 odd years. Things like this, and I wrote these in your, in your notes, uh, a selection of usual suspects that we might hear. Um, you know, someone would just say, well, just remember that God is sovereign. and He's working all things together for good. Or just rehearse your identity in Christ. Or just make sure that you're in an honest, accountable relationship. Or make sure that you're availing yourself of the means of grace. Make sure that you're putting on the full armor of God and waging spiritual warfare against the devil and the flesh. Make sure you're getting busy serving others. Or just remember that you are accepted, that past grace affirms that God is with you forever. Or ask God to give you the Holy Spirit that you might walk in his ways because present grace will daily strengthen you. Or set your hope fully on God and on the grace to be revealed in Jesus Christ because future grace will carry us through. Now, all of these things are wonderfully true. So it's good to reflect on this list. Not, this is not like I'm out to catch you. Like, don't say that. All right. No, no, no. All of these things are wonderfully true. Don't misunderstand me. Every single one of these statements captures some promise or some revelation or some purpose or some command or some perspective or some providence and help that God has given to us for the pursuit of holiness. Every one of these statements tells us something true and good and we need every single one of them. And we need uh, some others that I haven't included in the list. But none of them, my point is, none of them stand supreme. None of them should be exalted and relegate the others to the shadow. None of them is magic in and of itself. And not one of them means the end of your struggle with sin. And not, not even if you add all nine of them together will you necessarily experience an end to your sin because they're designed to speak to us. These truths are designed to speak to us in different ways depending on how we struggle as the Lord makes different truths meaningful to us at different times in our lives. So I love what David Powlison says and uh, if you want to read a book on sanctification this is uh, a, a, another fine one. It's called How Does Sanctification Work by David Powlison. He says we need stories and word pictures, both from scripture and from the testimonies of daily life. We need to understand how scripture illumines and connects to our current situation. And we need practical help to work out the implications and applications for who we are, for where we struggle, for what we face. We need Jesus to be present, the Lord who is my shepherd, the Lord who watches over my going out and my coming in. We need to get traction and get personal. We need other people. We need to hear and to take heart, take to heart other people's stories. We need God's creation. We need to understand our times. We need honesty about ourselves. We need fresh object lessons. We need embodied faith and love. We need many different wisdoms to illumine the parts, the different parts of life. 
the just kind of do this formulas never meet that need. If you think about Jesus in the New Testament and, and as a church, I think next week we're starting to go through the book of Luke. Um, you'll notice as we go through that Jesus never ministered to people by rote, by routine, because people are different. The circumstances that we face are different. The situations and the people that we are are kind of fluid and unscripted and unpredictable. And Jesus knows that. And so he meets people where they're at. You know, he does different things to, you know, so for instance, when he heals people who are blind, you will find two, three, four different ways in which he does that. Because each person is different. You and I are not clones. We every particular of our story will be different and yet there will be some uh, continuities, there will be some similarities. The kinds of things that you face are going to be analogous with the kinds of things that I face and the kind of help that we need will be analogous with the the kind of help you need, it'll be analogous with the kind of help that I need but they're not identical. And so just like raising children, every child is different and unique. We need, Jesus meets us and and so you can't just, it's not like, oh, you have um, tonsillitis, you need penicillin. You know, some people might be allergic to penicillin or some people are resistant to it. And so they need amoxicillin or whatever it is. I don't know, Uh, pretending like I'm a drug expert there. We, God meets us in different places. So what actually changes us then? This is question number three. If the details of our lives bring an innumer, you know, they bring different variables to the table, what changes us? Well, though there is no single definitive formula, I don't think things are random or chaotic either, all right? Scripture seems to describe and and organize life into certain patterns and change seems to include certain ingredients. So while there's no one single factor, no one truth, no one protocol that can capture how a person grows in godliness, there's because there's always multiple factors at work. I want to give you a framework again that I've borrowed from David Powlison about what actually changes us. And it's it's in your uh, notes. There's a little drawing here. It's supposed to look like a, some kind of house. And he says that there's five factors that are always at work in, in us as we pursue holiness, as we seek change. So he says, first of all, God. God is at work changing us. He's the foundational factor. He's the, the primary factor. You know, God changes us. As we've said all along, he takes the initiative to intervene in our lives and to save us through Jesus Christ. He is the God who bends down, as we said last week, to kiss the frog. You know, and then he moves us from the pond to the palace and he begins this process of changing us from frogs into into royalty, into princes and princesses. And so God is the primary factor at work in our lives. So that when we look back on our lives, uh, you know, at the time when the time may come, it's not primarily, our life is not primarily the story of what we did and what we accomplished. It's what God has done and he's working in and through us. So he's, he's the foundational factor that changes us. Okay. Then there's a second factor, which is truth. Okay. Truth or scripture. Psalm 19 verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Okay. 
or 2 Timothy 3, that, which we're familiar with, that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, may be mature, may be holy. So God speaks to us in his word. He, his voice is heard as we read the pages of scripture. And in a world of false voices and false narratives, we need the truth to speak loudly and clearly into our lives. And God gives us the scriptures to reveal to us his person, his purposes, his promises, his will, his actions that he takes. And it also clarifies who we are as humans. It clarifies our every facet of our human existence and experience so that it, it kind of holds up a mirror to us so that we get to know ourselves truly uh, in light of the God who made us. And scripture and God, they kind of work in harmony together. So for example, um, in Romans chapter 15, Paul will say, now for whatever was written in former times, in former days, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So he says, listen, you can read the scriptures and what you read there will change you. God will use that to change you. He will bring you to a place of hope and encouragement and growth and godliness. But then like seven or eight verses later, or nine verses later, if I do the math quickly, um, Paul will say, almost in the same breath, having said, you know, God is going to use the scriptures to give you hope. He says, no, the God, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may have hope. So you would say to Paul, well, hang on a minute. Is it the scriptures that give us hope? Or is it God through the Holy Spirit that gives us hope? And you'd say, yes. Because these factors work together to change us. Another factor, God uses other people. God uses other people. Wise people change us. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. Uh, John Piper once famously said that sanctification is a community project. That we, the pursuit of holiness is like a, it's like a team pursuit, if you like. There's to be mutual encouragement and mutual labor and mutual support and mutual accountability. We need community. Godly growth is, is often mediated through the gifts and the graces and the rebukes and the help and the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes that happens in formal settings, like we come on a Sunday to worship, we hear the preaching of God's word, we uh, experience prayer, communion, fellowship, all of that can have a kind of uh, a wonderful, fruitful effect on our, on our souls and our lives. But sometimes it's that informal uh, relationship and community, the, the honest conversation with our friend over coffee, the humility that they share, the clarity of thought that they have about our situation, the, the convictions that they hold that we think, oh, I, I see where they're getting them from. I want to hold them too. Or the, the conversation, the text messages, the prayers that we pray together, the encouragement that we experience, perhaps the mentoring or discipleship of someone else or the example and the role model of someone else. All of these can have wonderful effects that God can use to change us. It's great to have people who love us enough to deal gently with our ignorance and our waywardness and our weaknesses and our sins, whilst also kind of simultaneously holding out for us the message of mercy. Um, uh, years ago, I heard uh, a pastor called Mike Bormore say this, and it stuck with me. 
uh, he, he said, sin doesn't do well in the light. And I think that's straight out of the scripture. Sin doesn't do well in the light. The way to put to death sin is to draw it out of the hidden and kind of secret darkness of the human heart and expose it to the light. To expose it to the light of God's word and to, spo- to bring it into the light and visibility of those around us who can help us too. So other people change us. Uh, another factor that Powelson says is suffering and struggle changes us. That God works in the midst of troubles. That troubles that we experience, trials, suffering, challenges to life, they, they kind of get our attention. The hardships that we experience can be great teachers because they can make God very real to us. You know, as we experience difficulty, that we have a choice to make. Are we going to Uh, jettison our faith or are we going to sink the roots of our faith down deeper so that they become a so that our faith is not just kind of a profession but a reality so Paul would encourage us Romans 5 you know that we rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame there's that word hope again oh Paul I thought you said hope came by the word. Oh, I thought you said that the God of hope gave us hope. Now you're saying that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character produces hope. Which one is it? Yes, it's all of them. That's the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. There's a couple of other scriptures there that you can look at, James 1 and 1 Peter, that say the same things, that God works through struggles and trials and suffering to produce character and steadfastness and to refine us for the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. And then the final factor, that that one that's at the center of the house, is that we change. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, you turn from idols to serve the living God. We turn. We turn from darkness to light, if you like. We turn from false gods to true gods. We turn from unbelief to faith. As we ask for help, because we recognize we need help, we are honest, we listen, we remember, we behold Christ, we repent, we confess our sins, we pray, we obey, we fear God, we hope, we love, we give thanks, we weep, we believe, we trust, we seek, we fight, we flee, we take refuge, we rejoice, we praise, we put off, we put on, we walk, we work. All of these are scriptural words and they're all active verbs speaking of our wholehearted whole person action that we're not puppets or robots that are just acted on passively we're a hundred percent responsible bless you and yet a hundred percent dependent on outside help and none of the words that i just mentioned are kind of words that are one and done like you just do this once and you'll be fine These are continuous words that we continually need to, through our whole lives, keep pursuing. So let me give you an illustration to try and help you see how these five factors work together. Perhaps you experience some suffering or you're going through, uh, you know, a, a besetting sin has just raised its head again or something catches your attention. Maybe it's loss or betrayal or disappointment or guilt or... A pattern of sin, anger, lying, worry. Um, You know, usually hardships and sins come entangled together. So they kind of, there's lots of overlap there. 
But maybe a friend reaches out to you and they say, let's get coffee because I notice you're down. And so they begin, they meet with you and they begin to just care for you and they share something with you and they say, listen, don't, I know the temptation will be to skip out of church this week, but don't do that. Come to church. And as you stand there on a Sunday morning, something is said or something is sung or something is shared, which challenges you or confronts you or comforts you in your affliction. Some, in some way, God lands a biblical passage on your head and heart that seems inescapably relevant to your situation. And then as you think about it and as you dwell upon it, you're reminded of your identity in Christ and you are able to uh, you know, pinpoint your sin or your suffering more acutely and you begin to think about it more in terms of the scripture that you heard on that Sunday. And you reach out to your friend again and you say, listen, this is what I've been thinking about. Will you help me? Will you pray with me and for me? And maybe they say yes. And have you thought about how the scripture is calling you to live differently now? How you're to treat others differently? How you're to not carry around hatred or bitterness in your pocket? And you see, oh yeah, okay, I need to change that. And then kind of a couple of weeks pass by and your friend meets you for coffee and say, how are you doing? And you say, do you know what? Amidst the hardships and the sins and through your friendship and through the word, it seems like God has been working and he's changing me. And it's a mystery. But that's kind of how sanctification works. As he changes us in little ways, little variations, little permutations as these five dimensional factors kind of work together now we could talk about more specific examples but we don't have time but um and maybe that raises some questions for you i'm happy to try and answer them afterwards so but that's how i think change works god works through truth and people and situations and circumstances to bring us to a place where we change um and sometimes that takes a long time so let me ask question number four, uh, and then I'll let you read the answer in your own time because we just, we're struggling for time. But how long does the process of sanctification take? Uh, and David Powlison, I've lifted this from an article that he wrote um, a few years ago, uh, which is in the, I th no, maybe it's not in that book, I don't know. Uh, it's from his book, Making All Things New. Um, but if you want the answer, how long does the process of sanctification take? He said, take he just says your whole life and then he summarizes at the end actually with with this he says on the day that you die you'll still be somewhere in the middle <laughs> there you go so which is wonderfully encouraging you know we'll have moved on but we're not quite there yet we'll be somewhere in the middle but we'll be further along um, but God is at work and his he's at work for his glory um, and so he, he just says, it's not about the speed. It's not about the distance that you cover. It's about the direction that you're going in. And I think that that is, he says, you know, if you, if you are driving west, you know, at 75 miles an hour towards Seattle, you'll never reach Philadelphia. You know, no matter how fast you go, no matter what road you take, if you're going west, You'll never reach Philadelphia if you're pointed towards Seattle. It's about the holiness is about the direction that we are going. So uh, I would just encourage you to, to read that and reflect on it because it was wonderfully encouraging to me. 
Um, and he talks about, you know, some people, some people's experiences, they're gazelles. They leap and they bound and they change rapidly. Other people plod. Um, other people face plant regularly and have to get up. He says, some, some people, you know, you just, you, you want to commend them because they're even just facing the right way. Uh, and uh, different people experience sanctification at different rates. And we all experience it perhaps at different rates at different times in our lives. There may be a time where we leapt and, and grew like gazelles, but now we feel like we just keep face planting. But God is faithful. God is good. And he is at work. And one day when we'll die, we'll still be somewhere in the middle. But there is hope. And then finally, just to try and bring this all together, to make it practical, what do we do next? So maybe you came in with a particular thought or sin or area that you wanted to grow in. And I would just ask three questions, really, to think about what you could do next. What, how do we pursue holiness? So where is today's skirmish, if you like? The pursuit of holiness is a war against sin, is a putting to death sin and putting on Christ. Where is today's skirmish? You know, God typically works in specifics. He doesn't want us to, he, he's not like interested in sort of changing us wholesale overnight. He, he's not working on everything at once. He's usually working on something very specific so that he's calling us to change in the details. Okay. And so in, the, in our battle with any area of sin, uh, it's usually fought one step at a time. It's not like launching rockets from miles away. It's like hand-to-hand combat. So where is today's skirmish? Where, where, what's the thing that you feel like he's got his finger on you today? Where, where God is calling you? What's the kind of the choice point of today? What, what is the one thing that you're tempted by now or struggling with the most now? Find that and begin to think, okay, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start here. Rather than, oh, I'm just such a terrible person. I'm such a sinner. I just, oh, I, I just want to be different. I'll wake up tomorrow, I'll be different. No. What's the one thing? Is it snapping at your kids or complaining on your commute because of the traffic? You know, it could just be something small like that. And then say, then ask the question, what one thing in the scriptures are speak into this, into today's trouble. You know, um, just like Pallison says, just like we don't change all at once, so we don't gulp down and swallow truth all in one gulp. We're, we're simple people. We don't remember 10 things at once. We just, what's one thing that we could remember that speaks into the skirmish today? Let me give you an example. Could be simple like this, <coughs> okay? In, maybe you're reading Matthew, and you get to Matthew 28 at the end of the book and, and Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples after his resurrection. And he says, you know, those famous words, um, you know, go into all the earth, uh, into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you, you know, until the end of the age. And what sticks in your mind is I am with you. Wow. Jesus says he's with me. What difference would those simple words make to us if we were, you know, struggling with, with sin or experience, having experienced some kind of betrayal of a friend or something like that? How, how would I am with you change us? Well, for starters, it might think if we're struggling with 
private secret sin or doing things that we, we know we shouldn't be doing. The fact that God is with us, watching us, would that make a difference to us? You're with me, Lord. So I've got to think about what I'm saying. You're, you're with me, so I better think about what I'm doing. You're with me. So I better watch what I'm clicking on on the computer. You're with me. And, his, and so that just even that very simple, I am with you, can, can start to make a difference. It speaks into the, into the immediate kind of skirmish point of today. And we might then turn that that we read to say, Lord, help me to know that you're with me today. Help me to realize that you're with me today. That as I fight sin, you're with me today. With all of your resources, with all of your power, with all of your grace, you're with me. And, and you, God being with us and declaring I am with you might help us to think like, okay, so the competing voices of the world or sin and flesh and the devil, you know, but God is here as well in the conversation. So which voice am I going to listen to? How am I going to make a choice? You know, and the, the, the choice between God and sin becomes more real because he's with me. Or it might mean that I am with you, that not only does he know that he's watching and not only that he's there to protect you, but he's there to help you escape. I'm with you. Come with me. You know, he doesn't tempt us beyond what we can bear. He provides a way of escape, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Or we might say, oh, he's with me. He's, he's, ne he's promised never to leave me nor forsake me so I can trust him in this. You know, so just, I know that's kind of like a, out there, but just those small kind of scripture just can speak, you know. So you could say, well, Matthew 28 is about evangelism and discipleship. But actually God could use those words, I am with you to help you in your fight against sin. You see, that, that might not necessarily be the most, the, the place that you would go. You'd, you might go to, you know, um, Colossians 3, well, set your your you know your heart and your eyes on the things above and where Christ is and where he dwells and all that's coming as your life is hidden with him and then put off you know something there's there's a rightness you could go there but God could use something just in the moment somewhere else to encourage you as he uses his word to say I'm with you and that I am with you changes the terrain of the battle it it helps us to think okay I am, the, the I am, the great I am, is with me. How's that going to change how I live today? And then you kind of have to just step into the battle. What is God calling me to do? So if he's with me, what, what do I need to do? What does obedience look like? What do I need to put off? What choices do I need to make? How am I going to walk in the light? Who am I going to seek for help? Am I going to pray about this? So trying to just keep it simple so just start like what's one area that God might have his finger on you and how might he use this morning service in unexpected ways to speak to you how might you take that away and say I'm going to put that in my pocket and I'm going to hold on to that and it, God is going to use that and I'm going to share it with a friend and I'm going to text someone after the service and we say listen you know I've been struggling with this this I felt God speak to me in this. Will you pray with me? Will you help me? Can you meet me for coffee? Let's talk about this. 
And over time, through all of those factors that God uses, we begin to change. So much more could be said, um, but let me finish with this. Martin Luther, he said, this is under number six, the end of the matter. This life is not godliness, but growth in godliness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not now what we shall be, but we are on the way. The process is not yet finished, but it has begun. This is not the goal, but it is the road. At present, all does not gleam and glitter, but everything is being purified. You know, that the hard part of sanctification is the now part of sanctification, isn't it? That we live now, but we have hope. We have hope that he who began a good work in us will continue it to the end. That he who has called us uh, and saved us is conforming us into the likeness of Jesus and he will bring us to completion for his own glory and so we can trust him. Let me pray and then we'll take some questions or let you go. Father, thank you this morning for your word and your the hope that is in your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit and thank you that you use your word and your spirit and your people um, and the circumstances that you bring into our lives to change us. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to go from here, um, not confused, um, but with hope, hope that you're at work in us with some, perhaps some tools in our pockets to help us to put off sin and to put on godliness. Please help us to be different, Lord, as a result of what we've heard over these four weeks. Um, but Lord, we recognize that this is just like a taster. It's just a very brief overview. We pray that you would take us on a lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus as you help us to understand your word more clearly, love you more deeply and experience you more nearly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. Any questions, you can come and see me privately or we can tackle them now, but I know some have got to leave to go serve. Thank you for being here. Yes. Ah, okay. What is the difference between godliness and holiness? Yes and no, I think is my answer. I think that godliness and holiness, there's a lot of overlap so that um, they're almost synonymous. You could, you could talk about holiness, godliness and, and interchange the terms and, and it would be almost everybody would I think know what you were trying to get at but I think that there is some nuance between the two of them where holiness is a is about that kind of um, in its purest sense being set apart for God and being you know holy in terms of moving towards increasing moral purity if you like that's holiness in a, in a kind of uh, so, you know, if you spoke, if we were to speak just about holiness, it would be about the, our, our character and conduct being conformed into what God calls us to be. I think then godliness is just that kind of one step further, which may just, which just develops it a little bit more, which also includes like how we our devotion to God, our love for God, our love for others, our, you know, so it just kind of 
I don't, I don't, it's so close and so nuanced, and yet I think there's a slight distinction um, uh, in, you know, if you distill it down, holiness is about conduct and character. Godliness is about rel that kind of wider relationship. If you, I, I don't know whether I'm really getting at it, but... The, Right. Okay. So then give us the answer. <laughs> okay. So I, th I think there's, there, there's so much overlap, maybe like 90, 95% overlap. But I think godliness just, I, for me at least, it widens into, it's, it's all, of, like, it, all of life is lived for the glory of God. And so holiness, and holiness leads to God. Yeah, too, it's part of our godliness, you know, so it's part of our, you know, because we, we can think about it as it's, it's changing our character and conduct and behavior. Whereas I think godliness is just that kind of, it's our, it's our whole life and relationship lived under God for his glory and our relationships with one another, and, which are influenced and affected by holiness and help us pursue holiness. So there's so much back and forth and overlap that it's almost, you know, as we've gone through it, I've said like growth in godliness, pursuit of holiness, it's almost interchangeable. So, and I think I'd, I'd almost say, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So I, I would add that God asked us to be holy. And we say, well, we have a million things to do. We cannot. But then God said, be holy by being God-like me. I mean, let me Thanks, guys. See ya. Great question, though. Thank you. I hope it's um, all right. Well, if anybody's got any other questions, I'll stick around. But it's nearly 9.30, so it's time to uh, go across and get ready for the morning. All right. Thank you, everyone.